Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who or what is the devil? What does it mean to be saved? Will things or beings we consider evil eventually be saved by God? Who won't be able to resist doing so? Hello and welcome to the 821st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those unusual questions came came, came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. Uh, today we offer an unusual look at a subject that's somewhat off the beaten path for us, or is it? And we welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240 and that's from anywhere. Or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or you can contact us uh, via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. David Bentley Hart has been Director's Fellow and a Tem- uh, Templeton Fellow in Residence at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study, a prolific author widely regarded as one of the most influ- influential academic theologians in the English-speaking world. Dr. Hart has also held positions at St. Louis University, the University of Virginia, Duke University, and Providence College, our own uh, uh, favorite institution here in Rhode Island almost, uh, only a few miles from where we are originating the show today. His specialties include philosophical theology, systematics, patristics, classical and continental philosophy, Asian religion, classic and Christian metaphysics, ontology, the metaphysics of the soul, and the philosophy of mind. That's it. Right. <laughs> Our discussion today will center... Uh, around his latest book, published in September by Yale University Press, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. So, Dr. David Bentley Hart, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's great to have you with us. So let's just jump right in here. Uh, we're always careful to define our terms on this show uh, because people do hear things according to their own paradigms, and we have a very diverse audience. So what do we mean by the terms heaven, hell, and universal salvation? Well, we, we gener- well the first two we tend to uh, mean things that we can uh, conceive of and imagine, but that... that in all likelihood, don't correspond to any reality. Um, uh, in fact, in the, the uh, earliest centuries of Christianity, uh, there was no concept of heaven and hell uh, as such. And there was the age to come, which would include the whole cosmos, and that was what we were looking forward to, not, a, not just a post-mortem state uh, in heaven or hell. And the question was whether you would be part of that new age, of that new restored cosmos or not. Um, what we mean by heaven and hell today are fairly gauzy images of an afterlife, either one uh, full of puppies and flowers or, or, or one uh, that involves a great deal of physical pain. As for universal salvation, that, that means just what it seems to mean, uh, whether or not uh, the salvation that, that uh, specifically Christians hope for encompasses all persons, all beings, all of reality, or whether it's simply uh, intended, or, or whether salvation applies only to a select and rather small group of individuals. Okay. Uh, that- <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that makes perfect sense to, to us, certainly. Mm. Um, if anyone is wondering why we're covering this on a paranormal show, uh, we're both very, very interested in it ourselves. And the devil is the most famous villain uh, in many p- 
paranormal scenarios. Of course, all you have to do is look, look at all the movies out there and all that stuff. Uh, there are those in our audience uh, who have a problem with the idea of a personal devil, for lack of a better term. And as we get into the into the uh, the issue of universal salvation, what do you have to say about that? About about a personal devil, um, as some people may conceive it. As you say, it may the, the reality may be far deeper and beyond our paradigm. But what say you? Yeah, well, that's the problem. Is is the answer I would give or will give now? Uh, if you've got a, you know six or seven hours to spare, is um, <laughs> we'll do a couple of shows. The, the image of you know Lucifer, the the the, the chief fallen angel or archon of of the heavenly court, is one that, that sort of developed over time. And in fact, even the name Lucifer comes to be attached to him almost by an accidental association with a verse in Isaiah later on in Christian history. The only Figure identified with the with the actual star phosphorus or Lucifer in the New Testament, believe it or not, is Jesus. So that that particular story is a conflation of a lot of different elements in Scripture. But uh, the idea that there were evil agencies and, in fact, an evil archon or ruler of this world is very much part of the original uh, Christian story. And for the Apostle Paul, for instance. Salvation largely consists uh, in Christ having conquered these legions of powers and principalities and dominions, by which he means mutinous, angelic, or demonic powers on high, mm. and, and having restored order to the cosmos in Christ so that on the last day everything can be put back, restored to its proper order, with God being all in all and all things subject to him. So the idea of... of personal spiritual evil uh, in in the spiritual world, yeah, that's part of the Christian story from early on, but precisely how it's depicted and understood, you know, the notion of the kind of the bearded or mustachioed uh, sophisticate in a, in a velvet smoking jacket, uh, <laughs> overseeing the tortures in hell and coming up with ever more cunning ways to lure people into his embrace, that's part of later Christian mythology. Um, and so you have to dissociate the two. I, I think, yes, I do believe that there's real spiritual evil. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the points that often are brought up to us by people who, um, and I, I've contributed modestly to the literature on this, uh, is the issue of uh, a, a, an equally bad God and a good God, which is, of course, right out of Zoroastrianism Zoran- yeah, and Ma- Manichaeism <laughs> and everything else. Which yeah. seems to have been picked up in early Christianity because it didn't seem to be part of, of Ju- Judaism. I mean, the influences of uh, early Christianity, in your opinion, um, uh, in your, according to your knowledge, are they uh, present today in, in the, these interpretations? Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, first of all, in, in Zoroastrianism, which had many different epochs. Uh, uh, um, Ariman is never quite the equal of uh, of the Horavasta. No, they're not actually co-equal, but there is, yeah, a, an evil deity that is almost, uh, and, and who is a very formidable rival to the good god and is a kind of creator in his own right. That actually did influence both Judaism and Christianity uh, in the early century. It definitely influenced uh, Jewish thought in the intertestamental period. Hmm. And so the very notion, say, you know, the images we have of eschatological judgment and of 
and of Beliar or uh, Samael or, or Samael. Well, it depends on the different names for the evil one, you know, Mastima in some of the literature. That is influenced by Persian thought. And it, but it took deeper hold in Christianity. It's still there, uh, I mean, in the demonology of a lot of Orthodox rabbinical Judaism. Uh, but it did become kind of the cosmic picture. So Jews and Christians, as a result of the Persian, well, just the Persian rule, uh, you know, you know, there was a period mm. in the testamental period when, right, uh, Israel was under the rule of, of Persian power and then uh, under Seleucid power, which is, of course, Hellenistic Persian. Mm-hmm. And it did influence the development of, of Jewish thought and then Christian thought. And we have inherited that, that somewhat dualistic vision of reality. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, we're all heirs of Zoroaster, I guess. Hmm. Apparently. Well, I have nothing like your academic credentials. I spent a lot of years in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox seminaries, and only once do I remember the notion of universal salvation uh, coming up. And yeah. it was um, in a cl- context of class, and I'd never heard of it before. Um, how widespread was this debate in the early church? And uh, there was, uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, one council where it came up, was it Second Constantinople in the 6th yeah, century? Right, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, yeah. yeah. Um, it, so, it didn't really, it didn't actually come up with the council. Hmm. Uh, that's a myth. It was, oh, okay. ins- it, it, it was inserted into the canons of the council after the fact by the emperor or by uh, agents thereof, but, hmm. but we know that it was never actually discussed at the council. And in fact, what was condemned wasn't universal salvation as such. It was a very particular set of teachings that were later attributed to origin of Alexandria. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask about origin. But in fact, were not his teachings. So it's actually the Fifth Ecumenical Council, whatever it discussed, it didn't discuss universal uh, salvation, and whatever was condemned in those spurious canons that were inserted later, it's still not universalism as such. It's just one set of teachings that were rather odd if you read them. I never realized that. That's amazing. Just to uh, help our, our listeners kind of catch up with some of this. Now we're all, we're all a bunch of uh, people who are uh, you know have some some theological education here, so we don't want to leave people behind. Uh, there's a rule: never talk down to your listeners or, or write down to your readers. However, uh, for those who don't know, the ecu- there there are seven ecumenical councils or gatherings of bishops, which were usually quite local, as well, opposed to as right, opposed to today. The Orthodox number them at seven. The Orthodox after, number them at after seven. After the yeah. 16th century, the Catholic Church added. They uh, had their uh, own, yeah. Just, yeah, the 21. All yeah. the way up to the early 60s with the Second Vatican Council, which the Orthodox don't accept. But nevertheless, they were, when they were, um, maybe I'm oversimplifying here, Doctor, you could correct me, but uh, when there were issues to be resolved, uh, doctrinal or otherwise, uh, they would get, the bishops would get together and discuss a solution to this and usually come up with one. And uh, the emperor, uh, back in the, when the Roman Empire was still viable, uh, had a, more influence than, than the Pope of Rome ever did. Also known as Caesaropapism. Right, precise. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Don't try and spell it. Yeah. Uh, but um, in any case, uh, th- that's the background of what, what we're discussing. So uh, so th- this has never come up, the issue of universal salvation or any doctrine revolving around it has not come up officially in uh, church discussions, particularly Orthodox, or even beyond that? 
Well, there have been plenty of theological discussions, but if you're, if you're talking about the seven ecumenical councils, no. Uh, and again, the fifth ecumenical council, uh, the records we had of it were distorted by the way it was promulgated. But we know, and this is a matter of historical fact, that the issue was never actually discussed by the bishops there. They were concerned with a set of issues completely different, having to do with certain theologians in Antioch. Um, so, yeah, no, it hasn't. But, and, but, I mean, over time, of course, uh, as far as Rome is concerned, I mean, you know, uh, especially in the catechism, you'll find what are, uh, more or less doctrinal teachings. But in the Orthodox East, there are those who will claim, based on the spurious canons I mentioned, that universalism's been condemned. But as a matter of historical fact, no, it hasn't. And the best scholars all agree on that. The issue, though, that you raised earlier is the interesting one, is how widespread was it in the early centuries? And uh, all the evidence suggests it was quite widespread, especially in the East, because even as late as the late 4th century, St. Basil the Great, of whom you probably have heard if you have an Orthodox background, uh, reported that most of the Christians he knew were Universalists. They, that is, they, they all believed in hell, but they believed that it was a temporary thing, that it's a, it was a process, that it is a process of purgation by which wounded, fallen, or wicked souls are gradually restored and ultimately saved. Okay. Um, and that's based on, after all, the verse right out of 1 Corinthians. So, Okay. All right. Um, I'll repeat the title of your book, uh, Doctor, that, that, that all shall be saved, heaven, hell, and universal salvation. Now, uh, I looked over some of the reviews. I haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet. I will. I've ordered it. Uh, but the, uh, some of the reviews, particularly from uh, evangelical sources, are rather uh, dismissive at best and hostile at worst. Oh, yeah. You know. I, in fact, I told my editors, you know, this isn't going to be I – mean, my books are always provocative. But yeah. I, I told Yale, you know, in this case, uh, the people we'll be provoking will be more passionate and more – frankly, a little bit more demented at times. Um, the the uh, good reviews come from people who already agreed, the bad reviews from people who disagree. The thing about the bad reviews so far that I'm pleased to report is that none of them has actually accurately reported any of the arguments in the book. Hmm. So that either means that they weren't able to follow the arguments, which would be sort of you know, disappointing because I tried to make them as clear as possible. They are philosophical arguments, but I didn't try to make them impenetrable to to an intelligent readership. Or it means that they, uh, you know, found the arguments sufficiently difficult that they had to result they had to resort instead to invective. I don't know, but so far the negative reviews have been pleasing in the sense that none of them so far has actually touched on any of the actual arguments that appear in the book, and many of them consist in taking passages out of context to make it seem like I say all sorts of insulting things about people who believe in, in, in eternal damnation, whereas in fact uh, the phrases that are taken out of context don't refer to people at all. They have to do with very specific ideas that at various times have cropped up uh, in Christian history. Sounds, um, sounds a bit like modern politics, actually. Yeah. It is, but, but the question you, you, that, that I find attaches to it is why are so, so many people passionately uh, committed to the idea of eternal damnation yes. when 
I could challenge other aspects of their faith, and they would they would push back, but probably not with the same passion. There are a lot of people who are more for whom the idea of eternal hell is more important, perhaps, than almost any other aspect of their faith. And it's very strange when you see that come to the surface. So there's a really fascinating um, podcast I followed for a very long time, and I have no idea if you're familiar with it or if you even have time to delve into it. It's by Father John Strickland. Uh, it's called Paradise and Utopia. It is a... Yeah, I figured. I figured you're, you're a busy man. I, I don't do a lot of online anything. This, <laughs> That's what I think. This is an exotic experience for me. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for this exotic experience. So it's fascinating. It talks about early Christian history, and it sort of goes through the rise and fall of Christendom, as it were. And he did a very interesting portion on Western Europe and this sort of rise of um, sort of a, a pessimistic piety in around the ninth century. So... With that sort of kept in mind, where did this sort of idea of this sort of myth, this new sort of myth of of Satan or the devil or whoever sort of appear? Was it around that period of sort of a new pessimism? Well, no, I mean, I think it had been taking shape. I mean, there was always a belief that, there, you know, as Paul says, the god of this age, that is, that the, that the world is under the power of archons, or I mean, that's the word he uses in Greek. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, but there's no idea of, of of a kingdom of hell in Paul. Rather, it's that this cosmos, almost you might almost say, this cosmos in its present state is hell for us, and that Christ came to liberate us and the cosmos as a whole. And I use that word cosmos rather than word, just because I want to make clear that's the word used in Greek that we understand that it means a universal restoration, not just of souls. But Paul is quite clear on this, as is most of Scripture, the whole of creation. And uh, that 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 notion, however, you're right, was not pessimistic at first. I mean, the, the early Christian literature that comes to us is triumphalistic. It's all that Christ has conquered these powers. But it is true that, uh, and it might have something to do with the decay of the, the, the Roman uh, Empire as such in the West, the gradual falling apart of social order, the, uh, the the general decline of civilization in the West and what used to be called the Dark Ages, the ninth century would fit in that paradigm you know, at the end of it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to locate exactly. It is clear that certain pictures of Christianity began to emerge that had a kind of tragic cast to them, the notion that Whereas the New Testament, Christ's death on the cross is always depicted as a kind of victory over, over the power of death. It's Christ penetrating to the realm of the dead. And there's a word in Greek, litron or anti-litron, that means it's often translated ransom. But it just merely meant the, the, the price paid to set the slaves free. Hmm. It's, it's hmm. civil law. It doesn't mean a ransom. We started getting, you start later Christian thought, and especially in the West, the notion that the death of Christ on the cross appeases the wrath of the Father, you know, or that, uh, that we're born already guilty and loathsome in the eyes of God, whereas, you know, again, that's a distinctively Western, and, and I could, I could, it would, I would bore you stiff, but I could go into all of the reasons why certain translations of the New Testament led to this understanding of original sin. And slowly the picture emerges that every child born, every babe is already uh, guilty in the eyes of God, damned to eternal perdition, that God demands 
uh, a sacrifice uh, to appease his wrath and then provides the victim, and, uh, you know, and it, when that picture of salvation and, and begins to emerge, your piety is pessimistic, isn't it? I mean, the universe is, is, is a prison, not one that's been broken open and liberated by Christ, but one from which a few of us can escape if a capricious God is kind enough to give us the, the secret on how to get out. Yes. Mm. And also, concomitant with that, more and more of the sort of opulent mythology of hell begins to develop in which hell isn't just a vague name for whatever it is we have to face when we have to face ourselves in the light of God's love. It becomes more and more this perpetual torture chamber that God has devised cunningly to torment most of us throughout eternity. Uh, all of that, I see, is a great corruption and a perversion uh, but it's also a huge part of the story most of us have received from the past yes mm. one of the things that we are uh, adamant about discussing at least are labels and assumptions that uh, at least at, at the level that our work uh, where our work takes place uh, we're sort of in the trenches uh, we discourage people from uh, you know, even seeing these silly television shows about ghost hunting, etc., to uh, because we feel it just it, it's ridiculous and it, it's dangerous, um, even physically. Never mind spiritually and psychologically. You know, etc., etc. It could be entertaining if you've got insomnia. I mean, well, yeah, well, that, that's true. <laughs> yes, but I've um, a few of those things, you know, just remind me might be of my days in Providence. Oh so. yes, and uh, you. you, you uh, I'm sure are being listened to by a number of Providence College <laughs> graduates and perhaps students. We have a certain following there, and uh, it's, it's nice to have the local connection. So, uh, well, when were you in Providence? I guess from 2006 to 2009, I was the uh, uh, the occupant of uh, of what at that time I think it still is a rotating chair, a visiting professorship, and then I stayed on two more years. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, I was a very happy time. I many friends there. Yeah. Well, that was quite recent. We went on the air in 2008. Uh, too bad we didn't know you there. That would have been interesting. So, but in any case, when it comes to labels, things of this kind, uh, our particular work, and I'd like to get you, your reaction to this, uh, we, we do run into what, uh, by the end of the 1970s, uh, after I'd been thrown out of St. Vladimir's Seminary for researching <laughs> the paranormal, uh, we, we talked about that when we spoke on the phone, but there was an issue with um, uh, things that I came to call parasites, whose theology did not seem to match what uh, the, the the garden variety demon interpretation would would suggest, and uh, it th- th- an entirely new paradigm seemed to to come. And, and to this day, uh, you know, fifty years later, we're still kind of using this. And, and when Ben joined me when he was thirteen, and um, th- there have been certain uh, parasitical entities uh, we believe we've encountered uh, in, in several cases they have um, expressed um, sorrow and not maybe not sorrow but but regret at least to their hosts in one form or another that they had to live this way uh, that's unusual but it it's really an entirely sort of deeper thing and if we're interpreting it properly and, and if the people who are involved in these cases interpreted correctly, um, then it's 
there seems to be a certain amount of repentance, if I may use the word, among some of these what what would traditionally be known as demons. Uh, and I find that very intriguing. I don't know if you ever, I, I don't know how, how much in the trenches experience you may have had or whatever. Uh, well, none of that, no. Uh, no. And, and actually, I, I'm afraid I'm unfamiliar with your program, so I wouldn't even have been, I wouldn't even be able to say that I've encountered uh, your, uh, the descriptions before. Sure. Uh, I have no idea. Um, uh, I mean, I have, you know, I have actually encountered, um, Cases of exorcism and, um, and possession, in fact, uh, with, with real physical manifestations, actually, of something that happened in my extended family back in the 70s, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but the nature with it, I mean, a, a universalist does actually believe that all spiritual beings are capable of repentance mm-hmm. and regret. So that, 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 it does, is not intuitively problematic for me, but I'm afraid I can't really give you any uh, information or any insight on, on 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 what you may have experienced or what conclusions you may have drawn from that. Yeah, very very uh, honest answer, which we like. Okay, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON. 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we're right back with our amazing guest, Dr. David Bentley Hart. So stay with us. Hi, this is Joe Callahan, host of Coffee Ann, the longest-running panel discussion show in American radio. You never know what topic will pop up on Coffee Ann. So join us weekday mornings 8 to 9 on ON 1240 WOON Socket Radio. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Our guest today is Dr. David Bentley Hart, theologian, prolific author, and we're talking about the devil and the possibility that there, the devil may cease to be the devil, I suppose, essentially, uh, in the, uh, in whatever epochs there are to come. Uh, and we, we've talked about maybe some of the assumptions that you have to, um, or we will talk about some of the assumptions that you really have to have in order to even approach this subject. Uh, but then again, I think Dr. Hart has uh, pretty much set that to rest with, with, with the more cosmic view of restoration as opposed to you know, individual pigeonholed beliefs. Or, if you will, a reorientation. Yes, reorientation, yes. Uh, but unfortunately, most of the people we deal with, and, and people from the, the Western mind, uh, the mind uh, that, that grew up around uh, Greek, European, and, and later American philosophy and theology, I suppose. I'd, I'd throw I'd throw in prob- probably some more um, uh, more nihilistic philosophy yes, yeah. in there, and how that sort of sort of molded sort of the the mythology of people nowadays, at the very least. Yes. Well, the, the, the issue of, of the, of course, the, the personal devil and this sort of thing, you have to assume, people assume that there is one, um, and also people assume that their particular religious point of view is correct, and I just as a, an observer over 50 years or so from my own student days, um, I find that people don't generally understand the uh, the doctrines of their own religions, if there are any set doctrines, some of them really don't, 
and certainly people have this sort of um, uh, cartoonish view of an afterlife uh, and uh, even of, of any kind of salvation. So uh, do you have any comment on that sort of thing? I, I would think you'd be very frustrated uh, dealing with uh, Western students of the Western persuasion when it comes to trying to explain many of these concepts. Well, students of any persuasion, to be honest, <laughs> let's, let's be honest, how many undergrad, unless you uh, are dealing with a small group that's actively seeking knowledge on these things and hasn't been forced into a survey course, you're not going to, you're not going to encounter many people who've spent years thinking about these things. Uh, we do, I mean, I, I don't want to seem dismissive. I mean, sometimes a simple view is the one you need to get you through life. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, I, I'm not, this isn't a moral condemnation. Again, as I said, negative reviews of the book have misrepresented the ferocity of some of the language as directed towards persons, and that's not what it is. Uh, it's that we have come, many of us, to paint ourselves in the corners with these simplistic pictures. Uh, to the point that we begin to ascribe to God, while at the same time calling him you know, good and just and loving, uh, motives and acts and, and a sense of justice that we would be ashamed to ascribe to another human being, uh, unless we knew that human being was a genuinely evil person. So the question is, how do we get, how did we get there? And that's what most people don't want to think about. They don't want to think, they don't want to see if, if there's a fundamental incoherence at the very core of the system of beliefs that they've tacitly presumed and that they use vaguely but but uh, pragmatically to guide them through the years. Um, so no, I, I don't know if it's frustration, um, but I mean, but most of us, do, most say Christians, do have a, a remarkably as you say, cartoonish, let's say caricatured, picture not only of the teachings of, of Christianity, but of the tradition and of its history. So that being so. said, um, me, you brought up a really interesting interesting point, which is some of the some of the acts that are ascribed to God are they just make they, if you ascribe to another human being, it would just be shameful. Yeah. So would yeah. the next logical step um, and I say this because there has been a rise in in the, the quote-unquote religion of Satanism. Would the next logical step um, be sort of saying, well, you know, if God's this evil thing, why don't I just go and worship Satan? Well, if nuclear options are all we've got. <laughs> I, uh, what I would say is that the rise of disenchantment with Christianity and the rise also at times of a kind of radical nihilism in the way uh, Western, I don't just mean Latin Christianity, I mean the whole of, of, of uh, post-Christian culture mm. tends to view reality the, the, the reduction of everything to a kind of mechanistic, materialist calculus is in the fact in point of fact an understandable reaction to pictures of God that became progressively more intolerable to conscience. Yes. Mm. Um, to me, an atheist has a clearer, truer view of God 
than a strict uh, traditional Calvinist or Thomist. And by Thomist, I mean the school of Thomism, which, if you if you know anything about mm-hmm. it, is just as predestinarian and problematic morally as Calvinism mm-hmm. yep. or Jansenism, or that. and that that uh, that at that point the embrace of atheism makes sense because at least you're embracing. In rejecting that picture out of moral indignation, you're embracing the good. And if you had a clarified understanding of who and what God is, you would identify God with the good. Anyway, so an atheist is a better Christian, perhaps, than one who clings to these these images of God that make him worse than any devil could ever be. Well, that resonates with me. I remember um, as part of... a pastoral training in the seminary, because I was never ordained, and probably the church and I both had a lucky escape, I don't know, but uh, there was a, a certain amount of uh, hospital involvement, visitation. I've known some very good priests in the Orthodox world, so... Oh, yeah, so as have I. Most of them are, are, are ones I've known are wonderful. However, um, in in the, the course of pastoral training, and this was uh, a lot of it in the Roman Catholic seminary before I went to the Orthodox seminary, uh, there were a number of deathbeds at which uh, I was present. Um, most of them I did not know. Uh, four of them were atheists. Uh, one of them was a doctor. And what one learns very quickly that on one's deathbed, all theology, uh, all things that, that we consider so important fall away, and it's you and God standing rather, you know, you're standing naked before God, as a matter of fact. Yep. And it was just... Uh, Something, but but the atheists were terrified, yeah. and they every one of them took my hand, and they asked about God, yeah. and I said, I didn't know what to say, but but it just came into my heart to tell them, just say thank you, and that's because I, I remember I was privileged to have it among my teachers, Father Alexander Schmemann. From St. Vladimir's, and uh, he said, a, "Any a great man, absolutely, and any uh, any soul, anyone capable of gratitude. This is a paraphrase. Uh, is capable of salvation, yeah. and as simple and straightforward. And I think the greatest thing we have before God is is gratitude. So I think in the end, all discuss. Well, what did, well, I forget which of the fathers said it, but all theology ends in silence." Yeah. And uh, I think well, that um, many theologians have said it. Uh, yeah, pseudo Dionysius. Uh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, mind. Yeah. But the idea being that that it really does, uh, despite all impediments to uh, whatever uh, you know what we're trying to do, it, it comes down to, to simple to simple faith and and silence and just and love and certainly gratitude. So I don't know why I'm rambling out about that, but it just no, but the notion the, of atheists uh, really did. Uh, they did seem, in in the end, some of them, you know, very almost better Christians than the Christians. No, I I, I, um, I have a high regard for moral atheism. I, I wrote books about the new atheists <clears throat> a few years ago, mm-hmm. but that you know Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. Uh, uh, but they're not, uh, you know, they were sanctimonious uh, atheists who lack, among other things, even a coherent concept of what it was that most religions teach about God. They just had contempt for those who believed the things they imagined that they believed. 
and I, don't, I have no respect for that. I mean, Richard Dawkins is a, a you know, he's a third tier zoologist who wrote a bad book on genetics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's just as bad molecular biology, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, his book on God is just, you know, cretinous. I mean, it's just a silly book. So, but an atheist who's truly rejected a picture of reality, uh, that he, he or she was given that is morally insufferable, that's, that, that is incoherent at its core that says God is love. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, God is love. And if you don't accept that, he'll torture you forever in order to prove <laughs> it. That sort of atheist is running away from something, but also towards something uh, more ennobling. Uh, a sense of the good, a sense of cosmic justice, a sense of what should be, even if it isn't the case. And in that sense, I, I think that impulse is truer to say what the original Christian impulse was and should be than simple uh, submission of the mind and the will to doctrines that are inherently, as I say, incoherent, but also morally degrading. Um but I like the image you had of the person you know, standing naked before God. I mean, you know, a lot of if you, you should, if you spend time in the Eastern Christian world, then you, you, you're aware of, of uh, this uh, image that you find in the Eastern Christian tradition, but also in the Western spiritual tradition that says hell is nothing but the love and light of God experienced by a soul that's rejecting love. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah rejecting the love of God, rejecting the love of neighbor, and in that, the experience of infinite love is, you know, is a kind of torment. You experience it as as, as an ex- external chastisement. And that, for the great you know, universalist tradition, not just Clement and Origen, but, you know, Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Isaac of Nineveh and Evagrius and Theodore of Mopsuestia and Diodor of Tarsus. I, there, there's a long list of them, uh, right up to Sergei Bulgakov in the 20th century, for instance, mm. to take an orthodox figure. That's what hell is. It's simply the assault of love on the cruelty and selfishness and egotism by which we try to shut others out, by which we try to uh, cut ourselves off from God and other persons and creation as a whole. And But because it's the assault of healing love, uh, all of these persons affirm that it is an act of healing. It's not an act of wrath and that God would not sustain us in existence only to torment us. That, the, that you know, Isaac of Nineveh says this quite clearly. It would not be the will of God to, to torment us if that's all it were. Rather, it is a process of healing and restoration. So all of these classical universalists, and I talk about them in the book, did believe in the experience of hell. They believed in all the things that one would fear at death, but they did not see it as wrath. They saw it as the judgment of love. Well, in a sense, I mean, if that's the existential situation, some of these atheists are already farther along the path towards reconciliation with God. Mm. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. Believe, just believe in a, you know, in an arid sense, but in their hearts don't have the moral, as yet, moral sensitivity to rebel against an evil picture of, of God. Yeah. Well, and not to keep picking on atheists, but uh, I, I will always ask, I always think that 
not sort of unbelief requires just as much uh, reason as belief. Yeah. And I will ask them very often, and there are many who, I, whom I respect very much, uh, and I will say, what God don't you believe in? Yeah. And That's very it. often, you know, and they'll describe some some uh, caricature, as you say, uh, of, of something. I don't believe in either. Or some right. or other. Sometimes they'll just say, "Well, not nobody, not know how," you know. <laughs> and um, well, I wrote a, a book. I think it came out in 2013 called "The Experience of God," which is just about this. In a sense, that's just the question: What God is it that you you don't believe in? Um, and then it try. And that that's not a specifically Christian book. It draws on Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, all sorts of traditions uh, to point out that the God that you get in popular atheism is is uh, precisely the God that all of the, these classical traditions have already rejected anyway. Um, so, you know, I, again, I, I don't find atheism morally problematic at all, uh, and uh, in many, many respects I hold uh, a truly morally motivated atheist in much higher esteem than someone who will submit to a picture of God that, I, as I say, I find morally degrading. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm uh, just to return to an earlier theme that, that we touched upon, uh, and uh, the, something that sort of haunts me. Sorry for the you know pun. I guess uh, the issue of these these parasitical entities we believe that we encounter in you know the, the trenches, as I say, they. Um, I I don't think there are many that are. I mean, they, they are alien in, uh, in in a certain sense of the word. That's that's the feeling one gets in their presence. So sort of. So I'm not saying these are any kind of ghosts or anything like that. I don't think that's even physically possible under the laws of physics in our world. Anyway, this, the whole spirit thing of, in in that sense. But they do seem to be. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going. Yeah, I wouldn't put too much trust in in uh, in what the laws of physics can tell us about what's possible in the spiritual realm. Uh, well, well that, that's true, all, all, except for the uh, multiple worlds interpretation, which would allow just about anything. But but that's for another another day, I think. But uh, in the issue of the parasites, um, I suppose... Well, for any physical state, but I mean, again... Okay, yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but in the issue of the parasites, there's uh, they, they live by feeding upon what seems to be energy, and uh, the, the many seem to be... Pla- and Carl Sagan speculated on the possible existence of plasma-based life forms as opposed to carbon, and all this stuff. Uh, but, but the point being that uh, for them to cease being evil from our point of view, which I, I would think would be anything that's bad for us, we would interpret as evil, might not be evil for them in the sense that they have to eat. It's like expect, expecting a tiger or a lion to give up praying, P-R-E-Y, ing upon the food that it needs so for me the the idea of evil is and i hate to say it's relative because because that's created a lot of problems i think in society but maybe in in the case of these so-called demons or whatever you want whatever label you want to put on them is is this problematic is what's evil for them the same as evil for us as far as any kind of universal salvation is concerned and how would that be worked out or, or do we even know well, it's, it's for me, it's a purely suppositious question because I'm, I'm not convinced of the existence of the, the sort of things you're discussing. Sure, I am, um, uh, but uh, I do believe that yeah, that there's an ultimate good and an ultimate uh, truth and beauty 
Uh, that evil, on the other hand, uh, is not a thing. It's simply a deficiency in regard to that goodness. Mm-hmm. However, of course, there are, when it comes to the good in a purely finite sense, what's good for me now, then, yeah, my, my eating the fish is good for me and bad for the fish. <laughs> Um, but, but in an ultimate sense, uh, you, know, you have to dissociate the limitations of finite experience with whether or not there's a transcendental horizon, so to speak, where there is goodness as such. And that's something that can be experienced in mercy and love and justice. And where those things are absent, the good is absent. So, um, uh, I, I don't, I mean, it's, a to me, good and evil aren't relative questions, but what is relative is the relationship between the finite, momentary goods that we have to choose among with all of their attendant uh, contingencies, some of which are bad, either for us or for others. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not just a matter of when I eat a fish, it's good for the fish. If I do something super erogatory, like running into a burning building to try to save someone, I might get terribly burned, so that you know there, you know there, there's a cost for that as well. Um, that I might suffer, uh, or you know, I may even maybe later that does damage to me psychologically. So there are all sorts of costs okay. that are attendant on the finite, uh, limited goods we pursue in this world, but. Uh, I think that in an ultimate sense, in, in, in our ability to evaluate things in, uh, in, a, in a more ultimate frame, like I choose this because it's good, not just because it uh, it suits my needs, is uh, our way is is a, a sort of inherent intuition we have of the reality of the spiritual horizon of the good that ultimately embraces all creatures and is true for all to the degree that they can approach it. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry, I'm just taking that all in. Um, (laughs) So that's... So am I. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Run back the tape to see what I just said. Yeah, use it in your lectures. There's a... The idea that um, God is constantly pursuing us to reorient us back. Um, As... as, uh, Yeah, exactly. So So... if that process exists for us, does the same process exist for Satan? Well, I mean that. Yeah, I mean that would be the universalist claim would be that all all spiritual beings, uh, well, all beings, but spiritual beings in particular, that is, those that are possessed of intellect and will, uh, have to be restored to union with God. I mean that that of course creates the greatest tremors of, of, of distaste from people who think they're safeguarding orthodoxy by saying the devil can't be saved. But, um, you know, again, as I say, uh, this was not the view, say, of Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who's considered a pillar of orthodoxy. <laughs> he speaks in the catechetical oration of even the devil benefiting from the work of Christ. Or, um yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 if you're going to be logically consistent, the notion that any creature possessed of intellect and will uh, is separated from God is something that is contrary to the will of God. Mm-hmm. 
we're almost through here, but I wanted to give you a chance, Doctor, to talk about uh, your books, where people can find out more about you, websites, where they can get the books, etc. Well, I don't have a website, but there's this useful one called Amazon, and you know, yes, <laughs> all my books are available. Uh, this book and some others that are uh, attached to it thematically or a part of a continuum were all published by Yale University Press. Of course, their website would have information on them. Um, so, uh, okay, from about the most uh, uh, most I could say. All right. Well, there will be links on our site uh, to um, the, the the books. Which I I intend to read every one of them actually. So, can you tell us where you're going? That what are you working on now? What, what, what's your next quest? Ah, uh, well, uh, you know, I do. I work in a lot of different spheres, not just religion and theology. So I've got mm. some uh, more. I publish fiction too, and I've got some more of that coming up. But my next big project monograph with Yale is on back on philosophy of mind, which is where I've done a lot of work in the past. Mm. Uh, that will bring to fruition a project that's been going on for six years, probably. Okay. Uh, so mind, spirit, soul. All right, uh, very good. Nature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, any further questions for uh, our guest? Because uh, we have a lot to think about. Oh, yes. And it was, it was, Doctor, it was great having you on. And every time I had a question, you answered it in the previous question. And it, <laughs> it was... It was rather frustrating, well, that, that, but also very fascinating. Sort of rude of me, wasn't it? I'm mean, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's not like you could know. I hope you enjoyed your exotic experience of being on the radio, I, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch off the air, and, and thank you again, and uh, maybe we can send you a few of our own books. Oh, yeah, certainly. Very good. Okay, well, thank you so much. All right, thank Dr. You. David Bentley Hart, everyone. Okay, let's uh, let's get to our announcements here. Okay, well, uh, as the holidays roll merrily along, I hope everyone in America had a nice Thanksgiving. Uh, we look forward to the 2020 lecture season and our first event, the New England Parafest in Kittery, Maine, in April. Uh, stay tuned for more details as the date approaches. And you can check out our books. Uh, they are uh, incl- they include a couple of amazing titles, uh, I, I, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and... Behind the Paranormal 2, uh, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of. Uh, and uh, now, Dancing Past the Graveyard, uh, Poltergeists, Parallel, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God. And they're available from online retailers and in some stores. But for autographed copies, please visit our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. Okay, and uh, that site is... Uh, is up again sometimes it's not uh, you can find out more about the show our many cases over the years our public appearances and how to book us along with some of our 850 free recorded shows um, the they they all of we they've been restored from 2019 all the way back to 2011 uh, we've been on the air for almost 12 years and uh, they those are available on the various podcast sites that are popular, uh, Apple iTunes, uh, also Spotify and all the different ones, uh, because we have trouble keeping them on our site. There seems to be uh, attacks constantly on that, and they, they come down, they're there, they're not. So, uh, But they are available so far on these sites, and we are working on 2010, getting them back, and then we'll do 2009, 2008. So uh, we, we have um, a long way to go, but still uh, there are plenty there. Baby steps. Yes, exactly. 
Okay, so uh, we've got some charities. We have we have a few charities, quite yeah. a few actually. Uh, you can find out more about these charities, which include uh, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, helping Haiti's orphans, Youth Mentoring Connections in Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. And you can find several links to these at our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. And we do emphasize that we know the people who run these charities. Uh, th- these are not your mega charities where most of the money goes to administration. Uh, you can you can trust these, and we, we really check them out. And as I say, we know most of these people, so it's uh, it, it, they're good charities. So, Ben, what do we have uh, coming up for next week? So, next week, that's uh, next Sunday, December 15th, we'll bring you an open-line show to answer listener questions on many subjects with our favorite guest co-host, that's Shane Searway. And I must admit, him braving the wild norths in uh, (laughs) New Hampshire, coming down with various swings in weather and climate it's just it's I, shane, I'm, shane is amazing i'm uh, amazed that he comes down and he's like yeah. okay cool yeah we'll see we'll see you next time and he leaves immediately yeah well uh i hope he realizes we've got uh, not only an open line show next week but two weeks after that as well because we just we just cannot catch up with the communications uh, that we receive pretty much from all over the world and and we do our best to answer them so there will be open lines next week and then the week after that there will be um we'll have nick redfern on, he's always amazing. And then we'll have open lines a week after that on the 28th of December. So it'll be a quite the, uh, a quite the run, I think, uh, for Shane coming down. Uh, so we, um, leave you this evening, uh, that evening, afternoon with a sobering thought from American author David Wong. Uh, that's actually a pseudonym. Uh, the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world there was only one of him. What do you think of that, Ben? Well, I think many things. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I'm just I'm inspired after this show. I think it was really, really an amazing uh, uh, guest, and uh, I think well, there's plenty to think about. I hope we didn't uh, leave anybody behind with the uh, deep the- theological discussions, but it's all relevant to what we believe and what we are, and it's important. So there we are. Uh, so we do uh, thank you for listening in. Check out our website behindtheparanormal.com. Uh, and there's information also on our case uh, histories at uh, newenglandghosts.com. That's actually our main site, and we um, invite you to check that out. It's in dire need of updating, but we're working on that. So anyway, um, I am Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And uh, thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.